This episode is brought to you by Fully Gemstones. idea in the song was that, you know, you're going to come to a point where nobody's going to want you, but these diamonds will be something that you can hold on to as a memory of, of your wonderful youth. I think it's a satirical song. And I also think that what's interesting about it to me is that it makes it clear that any relationship that you enter into with a man is probably temporary anyway, because he's going to throw you over for a new model. So you might as well get something out of it. Welcome to If Jules Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewellery, an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas, and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture and investigate what's happening now. Few cinematic performances stand the test of time, like the pink satin jewel-laden Marilyn Monroe singing Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend in Howard Hawke's 1953 film, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which indelibly tied and linked Marilyn Monroe to diamonds. Today, we're going to dissect the movie and its lasting impact with the American film critic, author and journalist, Karina Longworth. If you want to talk about Hollywood, there is no one better than the writer, host and producer of the podcast, You Must Remember This, which is about secret and forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. So first of all, Karina, I wondered, I mean, I'm sure most listeners have actually seen this film at some point, but for anyone who hasn't, could you just whiz us through the plot of the story? Yeah, um, there's not much story. <laughs> it's basically mm-hmm. about these two showgirls, Dorothy and Lorelai. Lorelai is played by Marilyn Monroe and Dorothy is played by Jane Russell. Um, and they kind of go on a, a journey and get caught up um, in uh, some questions about their, um, I would say, character and uh, possible criminality. Um, and it ends with them to both marrying, uh, having a double wedding, and uh, in the end, kind of getting exactly what they wanted. And having some fun along the way. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was one of uh, Marilyn Monroe's first big hits, where she was um, a primary star of the film. She had kind of created this this sort of ditzy blonde persona on screen as early as All About Eve in 1950, but that was a very small part. And she had been in a few other films between that and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, but this was really a vehicle to make that character center stage. Um, I think you can argue that Jane Russell's character is actually the protagonist of the movie, that most of it is um, told through her point of view, kind of looking at the Marilyn Monroe character, but... This was certainly a, a bigger showcase for Marilyn Monroe than she had had before. And because it was so iconic, I think it, it led to the ways in which she was shaped in future films. Um, it was definitely a huge hit. 
Um, it was such a big hit that um, Howard Hughes, who had Jane Russell under contract and had loaned her to Howard Hawks to make this film, um, he basically tried to, to replicate it at his studio by making a film called The French Line, which is very similar in plot, um, but it has no Marilyn Monroe. It only has Jane Russell. So it was not nearly as much of a success. And I read that she Marilyn Monroe was under contract, so she just got her $500 a week contract fee. Sure, that's the um, way that, that mo- it worked for most actors and actresses at that time. Around this time, big stars started um, getting these deals where they would have production companies. So they would get paid sort of double salary and then get paid part of the box office. But she was so early in her career at this point that she was not able to make those kinds of demands. And really, she never was. She never really got to the point where she had that kind of power in Hollywood. But even though, you know, she had this sort of small salary, it was the biggest grossing film of 1953, wasn't it? So she didn't do so well out of that. Although, as you say, it made her into a big star and set this sort of iconic image in, in people's minds. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't say that she didn't do well. I mean, I think that she had, you know, made very good films afterwards and and um, certainly was a huge star. She was just not somebody who cashed in. And although we think of it um, primarily being played by Marilyn Monroe and Jane Russell in the iconic film, um, its story originated uh, much earlier, didn't it, in 1925. Can you tell us how, how it came, the process of when it originated and how it got to 1953 to the film. Sure. Gentlemen Prefer Blondes started as a serial in Harper's Bazaar written by Anita Luz, who was primarily a screenwriter. Um, she was, it's, you know, Hollywood film history is is not um, extremely well documented. And so for a very, a very long time, it was basically written by the winners and written by white men. And so we can't say things like this for sure, but in a lot of documentation, Anita Luce is called the first female screenwriter to work for a studio. And so she was already working in cinema in the 1910s. And then she ended up kind of leaving Hollywood and going to New York and falling in with this group of of New York intellectuals, including H.L. Mencken. And she witnessed this phenomenon of these very smart men kind of like losing all control of themselves when they were around these blonde women. And so she started writing satire about this because, you know, she felt like as an intellectual girl and as a brunette, she couldn't compete when there were these sort of fluffy blondes around. And I think at first she was writing out of um, a position of resentment and critique. And then as she started writing this character of Lorelai Lee, the, the blonde at the center of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, I think she started to love her. So it started out as a serial in Harper's Bazaar. It became a book, and then it became a silent film, then it became a stage musical, and finally in 1953 it became a film directed by Howard Hawks. And was there, there was sort of one moment, wasn't there, on a, on a train with sort of Douglas Fairbanks that she particularly prompted her to start writing the serial? I don't think Douglas Fairbanks was involved. Um, the story that I had always heard was that, I have heard the train story, but I had heard that she was um, traveling with H.L. Mencken. But this kind of thing is like, you know, there's probably seven different versions of the story. And maybe she made them all up. We yeah. don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely possible. But, I mean, one of the stories went that um, they were with a woman, a young actress, and she said she could so far outdistance me in feminine allure. 
And what was her secret? Could it be rooted in her hair? As you said, the blondes have more fun. Well, I think that what she saw was that, at least at this period of time in the 1920s, blondes seemed to embody something about femininity and womanhood that was more desirable than what Anita Luce, a petite brunette who was not, well, I think was very beautiful, but was not professionally good looking, was not um, thinking of her looks as being her primary value in the world. She couldn't compete with somebody who was really putting all their chips in on their beauty being their primary value in the world. And so you've mentioned she was probably one of the first um, female staff screenwriters, pretty independent for, for that time. Would you call her an early feminist? She certainly wouldn't have used the term feminist. Um, I think at that period of time, to call yourself a feminist would be what we would today consider to be an activist. You wouldn't use Mm -hmm. the term feminist unless you were marching for suffrage or something. But I think at her time, you know, she wanted to be able to have privileges that maybe were not available to a lot of women. I mean, certainly professionally. And you know, she had this this sort of weakness for um, falling for men who kind of took her money and <laughs> took advantage of her in a lot of ways. And so in a way, it's like I think sometimes like when we choose bad partners, quote unquote, bad partners, we're actually in a roundabout way choosing things that we need and desire. And in her case, these bad guys who kind of took all of her money and didn't contribute that much um, to the marriage allowed her to have independence and like kind of forced her to work and be the breadwinner. That's an interesting point of view. And so she was the breadwinner throughout her life. Certainly in, in uh, her her early marriage, which was very short-lived, and then to her long-term marriage to John Emerson, who was a director um, of, of many silent films, but ultimately uh, kind of faded in the background while Anita became um, a very valuable screenwriter at MGM. Um, so what was the culture in Hollywood at that moment? Was Anita Luce unusual in the fact that she, she, as you say, she was a breadwinner, she was highly used and respected? Was this unusual? How many women were working in Hollywood at that time? There were a lot of female screenwriters in the silent era. Mm-hmm. Um, she may have been the first, um, and she was certainly one of the most prominent, along with Frances Marion and the writer-director Lois Weber, um, just to name a couple, the director Dorothy Arzner. But there were significantly more women working in positions of creative power in Hollywood in the silent era and the early sound era than there were certainly in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Why was that, do you think? There's been a lot of theories about it. I think that the most convincing one is that in this period where Hollywood was kind of the Old West, before it consolidated all of the power into about six studios that were really controlled by banks on the East Coast, there was a lot more opportunity for a lot of people who weren't um, white men of about middle age. And then as Hollywood became a much more significant business and and more corporatized, and uh, with most of the activity consolidated in just a few companies, it started to feel like you weren't going to entrust these Um, potentially very valuable productions to some little girl. And actually talking about how smart she was, I'm I'm wondering that, you know, this this film character that she wrote, the dumb blonde that Marilyn Monroe played, who who turned out to be not so dumb, um, and she used, as you said, to get what she wanted, used her looks, her persona, to get what she wanted. I wonder, was this a part of Anita, do you think, herself? Because 
I, I, I read a quote of hers that she said, they keep getting up on soapboxes and proclaiming that women are brighter than men. That's true, but it should be kept quiet or it ruins the whole racket. Do you think she was hiding her intellect under, under a bushel to make sure she sort of appeased as she went along and got what she wanted? I don't know it's about hiding your intellect. I mean, I think this is a phenomenon that I've I've written and, and spoke about a lot, um, and I don't think it's that ancient history. Um, certainly, I wrote a book about Meryl Streep, and you see that kind of behavior in a lot of her career where um, the best way to kind of get what you want, whether it's a feminist goal, a personal goal, for a lot of women throughout history is to do it in a way that made men feel like they were giving the men what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that's um, true now? You think that's, is that how women have to operate in Hollywood now? Well, things are changing really rapidly right now. So mm. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't really want to fix a, an opinion about that on the record. But I don't think, I think we want to say that everything's different than, you know, this sort of ancient history. And I think ultimately real change happens very slowly. There's a lot of lip service about change, but I'm not sure that fundamental differences between men and women are changed that easily. And one of the ironies of this, of um, as I said at the beginning of Marilyn Monroe being indelibly linked with diamonds, is that she actually herself off screen had very little jewellery. And one of her sort of most important pieces was um, a string of Mikimoto pearls that she was given by Joe DiMaggio, one of her husbands. But nonetheless, the image of her comes up, you know, covered in diamonds, playing this role of the sort of gold-hearted gold digger with a penchant for diamonds. And I think in the film that diamonds are used at the intersection of love and money. I'm just going to quote here from Moira Spiegel, who's a visiting assistant professor in English and comparative literature at Columbia University. And she wrote about the role of diamonds in Gentlemen Prefer Blonde, saying, and I quote, they represent a tried and true feminine distrust of men and their urges. And who should know better about male urges than Marilyn Monroe's Lorelei Lee? If men are fickle and untrustworthy and take what they can get when an attractive woman catches their eye, why shouldn't a woman take what she can get in return? Diamonds, in contrast to men, are reliable. And a girl, according to Lorelai, being a practical person has to plan for the future. If she will eventually lose her allure, her diamonds, square cut or pear-shaped, will never lose theirs. The arrangement seems to be fair and reciprocal. Men desire women, and women desire diamonds. You know, I, I think that ultimately the movie suggests that she and the, her suitor, played by Tommy Noonan, are going to have a happy union, at least for a little while. But I think you have to understand that the characters being played by Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe, depicting women as showgirls in Hollywood movies, it's really a kind of code. And it's a code that started in the 1920s, and it's a code that persisted. It may even persist today if anybody's making movies about showgirls. But to, to present a woman as a showgirl is to say that she lives a transient lifestyle, that um, her morals are inherently called into question. Um, it is, she, you're not saying she's a sex worker, but you're not saying she's not a sex worker. And so I, to me, the story of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes is not really about like, 
about love or, or sort of finding um, happy marriages that are going to last a lifetime. It's about kind of a stopover in the lives of these two women who are going to have other adventures beyond these marriages. And of course, the most memorable song in people's minds is Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. It sort of celebrates materialism, but also some critics think triumphs a woman's desire for financial independence. And what's your view about that? Do you think that the get that ice or else no dice, is that um, her being practical about her future? I think it's a satirical song. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think that the the lyrics of the song, what's interesting about it to me is that it makes it clear that um, any relationship that you enter into with a man is probably temporary anyway because he's going to throw you over for a new model. So you might as well get something out of it. So was that the sort of the, the feminist view of the 1950s, do you think, coming out in that song? I don't think there is a feminist view of the 1950s. <laughs> um, and I don't think that the song is feminist. I think that it's kind of just making fun of this idea that... Um, you know, women would be exploiting men. And that's that's not a 1950s idea. Gentlemen prefer blondes, I think. Obviously, it originates in the 1920s and the style of movie that it is, um, with the exception of, of the, the technicolor, spectacular musical numbers, the type of story it is and the type of movie it is is a re- really a throwback to the 1930s and to the sort of pre-code sex comedies of the 1930s. So if this mm-hmm. movie had been made when Anita Luz was a working screenwriter, it probably would have starred Jean Harlow instead of Marilyn Monroe. Jean Harlow being the um, sort of archetype of blonde that Marilyn was a 1950s recreation of. So it's a kind of mutual, it's a mutual thing. The man's getting what he wants, the woman's getting what she wants. Well, the point of view of the song, obviously, is the point of view of Lorelai. And so she doesn't really seem to care what the man wants, which is interesting. I mean, that that is, um, that's in contrast to the Jane Russell character, Dorothy, who doesn't care about money, only cares about sex. And so primarily she cares about her own sexual pleasure, but um, I think that she wants to give pleasure as well. And that's where, uh, do, you, do you think it had a sort of a different attitude in that it threw over those, um, those sort of gender barriers in the way it reversed it, in the fact that um, the Jane Russell character is basically objectifying the men as opposed to the men objectifying the women? Certainly, um, the, the main musical number that she does on her own in the film which is called um, Is Anyone Here for Love, it absolutely reverses what you're used to seeing in a Hollywood film in terms of what we talk about as the male gaze, uh, in which women are put on a pedestal to be looked at and to be sexualized. This scene puts the men on the pedestal and it shows a woman actively objectifying them and sexualizing them. Do you think that was quite a sort of groundbreaking scene? I think it's very unusual for the time. In terms of groundbreaking, I think that suggests that, like, maybe it leads to, um, you know, the breaking down of barriers or the opening of doors to more things like that. And I don't think I would say that. Um, I don't think that much followed in that mold after 1953 for quite a while. So if we think that the Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend is um, referencing materialism um, and uh, sort of culture driven by money and the idea of capital, attracting capital, and they use diamonds as this metaphor, do you think that's that's um, a moment in the 50s as well of this sort of high point of sort of luxury and wealth and the materialism really gathering pace? 
I think of the 1950s, at least in America, um, as definitely being a time that is associated with materialism and consumerism, but not luxury and wealth. Um, I think the fantasy that's being sold is not everyone can have diamonds or everyone should have diamonds. The fantasy being sold is that everybody can and should have a home. Everyone can and should have a brand new washer and dryer every year. Um, especially the ideas being sold to women, um, it's not about wearing diamonds and gowns and, and you know, having a luxurious life. It's about having a comfortable life in your home and using technology and using consumerism as a way of being a better housewife. Sort of labor-saving devices, basically. Yeah, but, I mean, labor-saving, sure, but still the idea was not like, you'll have so much free time so that then you can have a career or then you can be a showgirl wearing diamonds. The idea was, you know, you'll have so much free time so that you can better serve your husband and children. <laughs> and have your cocktail dress on ready when he comes home from work. Sure. Um, and of course, the you know, not only did Marilyn Monroe not really wear diamonds off screen, obviously all the jewellery in the film was crystal. None of it obviously was diamond. And all made by the King of Jewelry, Joseph of Hollywood, who made jewels that appeared in over a thousand films. Um, he moved to LA during the Great Depression and had this great hobby of making jewelry in the garage of his Sunset Boulevard home. And then he made this into his profession. And by the time he died, um, he died quite early. So before this film was made, but his widow Joan had continued the business. He had a sort of epic catalogue of jewelry, and um, part of it was that as each film wrapped and they gave the jewellery back, he then could rent it out again and um, the pieces could be repurposed or sold. And the diamond tiara that Marilyn Monroe in the film is falsely accused of stealing was later used and worn in uh, Snow White and the Three Clowns in um, 1961. Interesting. Um, and I think that um, the use of jewellery often in, in, in films like this is aspirational for people and they want to sort of mimic and copy the film stars what they're wearing in a film, don't they? Sure, yeah. I mean, for me, uh, watching this movie, I always was really attracted to um, Jane Russell's uh, costume jewellery. <laughs> I always thought that was really cool. The big golden hoops and mm -hmm. things like that, yeah. Yeah. And it was quite interesting that, I mean, before before the marriage scene, so much of what they wear um, it, uh, is the sort of very um, flamboyant costume jewels that you know can't be real. Yeah, and I mean, again, that's part of the costuming of them as, as being showgirls. Um, they're not considered to be, they're not costumed to be, they're not styled to be, they're not presented as sophisticated women of a high class. Okay. And so the diamonds are aspirational for Lorelai as well within the film. And I think Chanel, Coco Chanel, once said costume jewelry isn't to make women look wealthy or rich, it's to make them look beautiful. So I suppose they were using them in that, that way to um, enhance their looks, to attract the man to buy them the diamonds. <laughs> <laughs> And I think you sort of, the point you made earlier was about the, the diamonds being um, a symbol of reliability, that their, their foreverness is emphasised in the film, whereas in contrast to the men who are sort of untrustworthy, fickle and probably temporary. And, you know, a couple of the lines of um, men go cold as girls grow old, the idea that women lose their allure as they age but diamonds won't lose theirs, is touted. And, you know, we often hear now of actresses complaining that the parts dry up as, as they age. They're no, 
decent parts for older women. So do you think that's um that's something that resonates now? Well, I think the idea in the song was that, you know, you're going to come to a point where nobody's going to want you, but these diamonds will be something that you can hold on to as a memory of, of your wonderful youth and your wonderful romantic times. Um, in terms of Hollywood now, I think what's interesting is that there are parts for older women, for sure. Um, the thing is, is that I think that what Hollywood has done is that they've completely elided the aging process. So the last actresses that we've seen age would be Meryl Streep, Helen Mirren, um, people of that generation. And now we just don't see actresses age at all. So, you know, there's a television show right now starring an actress in her 50s, and she's so full of injections, and they're doing digital smoothing. And it's like, she it feels like her an uncanny valley. It's like watching a cartoon. And so that kind of thing is troubling, I think, um, because it's like, living like we're living in a fantasy world where not only do women do these interventions so that they look I guess I guess the goal is to look like maybe permanently 32 but it also kind of cuts out from storytelling um these very real things that women experience in terms of you know aging out of what society considers to be attractive going through menopause um, so many other experiences that are just sort of not on the table to talk about in movies because all actresses look either 30 or 70. Yeah, and that's not very good as we're talking about people going to the movies to watch things and finally aspirational and wanting to mimic because then you've got a generation of, of young girls who are who are being um, persuaded that they, they shouldn't age and that there is nothing for them when they do when in fact you want people to say there's a whole lifetime and you flourish and you grow and you learn and and then you develop and actually some of your middle age could be your finest years. Sure. And I mean, I think that's even an idea that is in movies like Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Like I was saying, like, I don't know if these two women are going to remain married to these two guys forever, um, but they're trying to pack as much experience into their lives as possible while they still have all these doors open to them. And I think that we've kind of stopped talking about the idea of, I don't know, that of life being like a long trajectory with different phases. And we're like Hollywood movies now are just pretending that there are two phases. So what's the um, secret, do you think, to the the film's lasting influence and impact? Um, you know, I don't know that I am a really great um, <laughs> analyzer of that. I mean, I, I'm not sure that it is it continues to be all that influential or watched. Um, my experience of talking to people about the work that I do is that most people know who Marilyn Monroe is and has ne- have never seen one of her movies. Um, really? So I hope that people would watch this film because I think it's really great. It's one of my favorite Howard Hawks movies. I think Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe give some of their best performance in it. They're both really good at, at doing something that I think is an undervalued skill, which is telling a story through song. Um, and that's very valuable. And it's it should be remarked upon because neither of them, I think, get the credit they deserve as either actresses or singers. So yeah, I mean, I, I really hope that people do watch it. But my sense is that it's not... Um, very widely seen anymore at all. But people do mimic her look in it, don't they? And they mimic the song, and that that does crop up from time to time, doesn't it, with other singers? Mariah Carey, Kylie Jenner, In V Magazine, Camilla Cabello, Ariana Grande, and Blake Lively in the 100th episode of Gossip Girl. They have all channeled 
this look that's become a classic look, pink satin, big bow at the back, diamonds, even if they don't dye their hair peroxide blonde. We all know who they're referring to. So in in the 1980s, Madonna did a music video for her song, uh, Material Girl, in which she does an almost exact recreation of the Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend scene, including the same costume and the same stage. Um, but, you know, I, my take on that video is that it's, it's both a loving tribute, but then it's also um, kind of trying to critique that idea of Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. I mean, the the music video has these two narrative layers, one in which Madonna is performing as Marilyn Monroe, and then another in which she's um, just a normal lady who says, like, who basically is, like, having a romance with a guy who she thinks is a truck driver. So it's both, it's trying to have it both ways of, like, you can enjoy the fantasy of dressing up this way, um, but ultimately, like, this coveting of luxury is not really what matters. So I always find that interesting. Um, I think, you know, what you talked about also is interesting that Anita Luce's writing, which is kind of witty, sharp one-liners, as you said, this sort of unique perspective of of the women objectifying the men and getting what they want. I guess you've got that. And you've got the magnetism of the two women um, that I think makes it um, makes it watchable now as well. And the, um, I thought the relationship between them two is very good. It's a very um, good feminine view in the fact that they are such great friends and they're so supportive of each other, aren't they? I agree with that. It's interesting. Um, and this ties into the, the question of whether or not this movie has any contemporary influence. Um, I wrote a book about Howard Hughes in which I talked about this movie because quite a bit of the book is about Jane Russell. And when I was on the book tour for that book, I went on a podcast called the Bechdel Test podcast, which Mm is um, two young women, probably at that time they were in their early 20s, watching classic films and analyzing whether or not they conform to the Bechdel Test, which is it's a there's only one question on the Bechdel Test. And it is, are there two female characters in the movie or more? And do they talk to one another about something other than a man? And I felt the way that you did, which is that this movie is about these two women sort of working together. And so I've always felt like it is a a positive um, representation of female friendship. But these younger women were extremely negative about it and um, said that the film fails the Bechdel test, you know, really saw it as being extremely retrograde. So I don't know. I mean, I think that different generations have different ways of of assessing what works for them and what doesn't. uh, I do hope that such, I guess, binary assessments um, don't end up kind of closing off too much of history. Because I think, you know, it was a film that allowed female characters ownership of their own desires, which um, has to be a good thing. And I think their friendship won over all the relationships with the men, actually. <laughs> I think after the, the end scene where they come in there, matching wedding gowns you kind of feel they're almost marrying each other well yeah I mean that that's that ties in with this idea that like their relationship to each other is probably gonna outlast their relationship to these men and like on some level you know I I don't know that I would necessarily call them criminals but there's like a sense of con artists about them and you know they will probably re-team to you know, pull off some kind of adventure sometime in the future. Yeah, there's a look of understanding at the end when they they are getting married. And, I, you know, they look at their diamonds, their diamond engagement rings, 
And I, you know, I wonder if the look is sort of acknowledging the marriage is the the rock, or the diamond is the important rock. Well, I think for Lorelai, marriage is a means to getting the diamond, which is the the thing of lasting value. And I think um, for Dorothy, her story arc is that she thought that she wanted lots of men, and then in the end of this movie, she's happy having just one. But who knows what the future? Holds. And I guess that's the end of a good film, isn't it? That you wonder, you sort of wonder and want to know another adventure that they might have. And Jane Russell did a, did make a sequel called Gentlemen Marry Brunettes. Oh, did she? Yeah. I didn't even know that. <laughs> yeah. So she obviously did dump the, this husband <laughs> and then go off and have another. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a very different story. Um, Anita Luce also wrote a book called Gentlemen Marry Brunettes, but the movie is weirdly not an adaptation of that book. It just uses the title only. Mm-hmm. Do you think the film is about sort of financial independence? And what would you say the essence of it is? Um, I don't know that I would say that it's about financial independence. I mean, I, th- I think it's more about uh, women kind of deciding the course of their own life, at least for a lot of its running time. But because it is the 1950s and it is a Hollywood movie, you know, the their decision uh, is that they want to be married in the end. You know, I mean... Hollywood movies of that time were subject to a censorship code in which you basically could not depict any kind of sexuality unless it resulted in um, a happy marriage. So that's something to keep in mind as well when sort of looking for um, uh, a message in in really any Hollywood movie from the 1930s through the mid-1960s. Do you think it's something that should be remade with a modern lens and see how how different it would be and whether the outcome would be different? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, I don't feel like Hollywood makes this kind of movie at all anymore. They barely make movies about women. They don't make romantic comedies. When they make musicals, they're based on, um, like, active Broadway stage hits. Mm. So it's really difficult to imagine. Um, But again, like, I I think that most of the ideas being worked out here are ideas of the 20s and 30s, given kind of a 50s spin. And so it would be hard for me to... um, I guess it would be hard for me to figure out what reason there would be for it to, you know, comment on today. But I think there's um, such a run of sort of male buddy movies with The Hangover and things like that, isn't there? I think we're overdue a female buddy movie. I don't know. I mean, there, uh, there's a, there's been a couple with like Sandra Bullock and uh, Melissa McCarthy. You know, I think that, I don't know. I mean, it, What's happening in Hollywood right now? I mean, even the Hangover movies feel like they were a while ago. Um, it's really just all superheroes. So, and why why don't we have rom coms anymore? Have have the public gone off rom coms? Well, I think there were some. Um, there was a string of of commercial failures, and there's a sense that it's not something worth spending a lot of money on. Um, I think I know a lot of cases the romantic comedy has moved to the TV movie. Um, certainly, Netflix releases a lot of romantic comedy TV movies. I don't like to pretend like I have a crystal ball when it comes to Hollywood. Like I think, you know, William Goldman's adage that nobody knows anything is accurate. But it's really hard specifically to say how the industry is going to change after the pandemic. And I mean, it's something where data is still being collected as to what people are willing to go see in the movie theaters and what they're not. Um, Unfortunately, recently, I think a couple of really good movies made for adults have been released and nobody's gone to see them. So... um, probably what we'll get are more superhero movies, at least for a time. That seems to be what Hollywood considers to be a safe investment. Yeah, and superheroes don't wear jewellery, so we're not so (laughs) interested in them. (laughs) Um, 
But um, I think it was um, H.L. Mencken, wasn't it, who said that Anita Luce was the first writer who poked fun at sex. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she must have... Um, so she was quite um, forward in her thinking, wasn't she, when she wrote this? It was daring, for sure. Mm-hmm. And it was especially mm-hmm. daring because... Um, all of these male intellectuals who she hung out with knew that she was kind of skewering their girlfriends and mistresses. And did she find love in the end, do you think, Anita Luce? I think that she had some affairs that made her happy. Um, Her marriages were not ultimately very satisfying. Yeah, she couldn't rely on Emerson, could she, at all? (laughs) Well, you know, (laughs) she really tried with John Emerson, who um, was her second husband, and she kind of brought him into her own work and, like, insisted that they be credited as a writer's team, even though he wasn't really contributing much writing. (laughs) But ultimately, um, even though they stayed married, she kind of left him behind when she was hired by MGM to help shape Jean Harlow's career. So she did a great job with that. She did, and she ended up being one of Jean Harlow's closest confidants until Jean Harlow's tragic early death. I guess in a modern comparison, you could say she was someone like Nora Ephron. Nora Ephron wrote and directed stories that were motivated by her experience, and she was almost doing versions of autobiography quite a lot, um, with the exception of something like Julia and Julia, whereas Anita Luce was taking assignments from the movie studios, with the exception of, of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, but... I mean, that that wasn't a screenplay. In a way, it started um, a bit like the um, Sex and the City in a series of articles, didn't it, that then mm-hmm. got taken up and, and made into something bigger? Well, quite a lot, um, you know, books had their genesis in, in serialized articles in magazines and newspapers at that time. So The Gentleman for Blonde's book um, was really a collection of those articles Um, And then it was immediately adapted to a silent film, but about 20 years passed before anything else came of it. Do you have a copy of it? The book? Yeah. When I was in graduate school, um, I first read Anita Luce's books about her life and about Hollywood, which are really great. There's one called A Girl Like I and one called Kiss Hollywood Goodbye. So at that point, I read um, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and also Gentlemen Marry Brunettes as well. I think quite a lot of very well-known academic writers said it was their kind of almost like their guilty secret, Edith Wharton and James Joyce. And they, I mean, they all thought it was a great novel, didn't they? I mean, I think it's, I think it's pretty good. So, (laughs) because I agree with them. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for giving us your, you've got like this encyclopedic knowledge. (laughs) How long have you been reading about Hollywood and studying it? Well, all my life, but um, I went to graduate school um, to study cinema studies in 2003 to 2005, and then I kind of got out of Hollywood history and was a film critic. Um, Then I got back into it. And what's your golden period? What period do you like most? It changes. Um, I think the 1930s uh, are very fascinating, and I think the 1950s are very fascinating, Um, World War II and the immediate aftermath. Um, Right now, I'm doing this season of my podcast about Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin. And so that's really interesting because it allows me to really talk about almost the entire 20th century from the 1920s through the 1990s um, and to really analyze um, how the idea of cool shifted over that time, how ideas about masculinity shifted, and to see a lot of connections about um, sort of how those two things in particular 
um, evolved from World War II, the immediate aftermath of World War II, the 1950s, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and then this sort of post-Vietnam, post-sexual revolution, post-civil rights period in America that like leads right into Ronald Reagan and leads right into a, the conservatism of the 80s. So it's all good. <laughs> and you're documenting how masculinity or the idea of the masculinity being portrayed changed over that period. Yeah, through the stories of Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin. Who were great friends. Yeah. Well, that's that's a big topic. That is a big topic. <laughs> and, and I guess those leading men have, have really changed, haven't they? I mean, Dean Martin was able to just sort of be drunk all the time, wasn't he? <laughs> well, that, <laughs> I mean, that was his persona, but um, he wasn't... He wouldn't have been able to work as hard as he did if he was actually that drunk. He also liked to get up at six in the morning every day to play golf. So Okay. <laughs> so he was just burning the candle at both ends. <laughs> well, we're going to look forward to hearing that. Yeah, Thank it's out you. right now. So, And do you have a favorite, um, a favorite film of all time? I usually, I mean, it's, you know... Obviously, like my my current favorites change all the time. But when asked that question, I usually say it's the 1954 version of A Star is Born starring Judy Garland. It's amazing how some stories get remade and remade, don't they? Well, A Star is Born is kind of Hollywood's foundational myth about itself. And so Mm -hmm. Hollywood likes nothing more than to tell stories about itself. And this is kind of its stickiest idea about itself in terms of this idea that there's only so much space in the, the Hollywood heavens for stars. And so if we're going to elevate a new person up there, somebody has to die. And I guess there's always been that myth as well. The minute you become a star, you have all the jewelry at your disposal in the world, you know, either to wear in the movies or to wear on the red carpet. And there is this thing that actresses do get, um, they are seduced by that, aren't they? Well, I think I think people are seduced by the attention and the promise of love. I'm sure some people are specifically drawn to jewelry or, or to wealth or luxury. Um, but I think what's more common to actresses, act, actors, and even anyone today, TikTok stars, is that they want to be looked at and they want to be loved. That's a very good point. <laughs> but thank you so much. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes of If Jewels Could Talk, please go to our website, carolwilton.com slash podcasts. And if you liked it, please share it any way that you can. And please subscribe to the podcast feed on any of the usual platforms where you find your podcast. And we'd love a rating and a comment. And please join us again for the next Jeweled Nugget, when I'll be talking about our feathered friends, bejeweled animals and all manner of creatures great and small created into jewels with jewelry expert and author of the book beautiful creatures marion Faisal. please join us then and in the meantime i wish you a sparkling holiday season goodbye if jewels could talk with carol Wilton is produced by natasha cowan music and editing by tim thornton graphics by scott bentley illustration by Geordie Labanda and you can find me on Instagram at Carol Walton. Mm-hmm.